Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John 20, and I'm going to read the first 18 verses of Scripture. And where we are going this morning is how the power of the resurrection of Christ affects the future of all those who are in Christ. We know Christ rose from the dead, but how does the historic fact of His resurrection, how does that affect our lives today and our lives in the future? So the story of the resurrection, and the story is found in all four of the Gospels. I'm reading this morning John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and likely John here is talking about himself, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. A lot of speculation on why John points this out, that the other disciple outran Peter. Um, I don't know why he said that, um, but if I was writing this, even under the highest inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I outran Peter, I may point that out in my book. That's all I'm saying. Because <laughs> I don't know why else that would be there. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, <clears throat> Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to, this, to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, a path of where we're going this morning. Um, I'll lay some groundwork and then I want to talk about because Christ lives, 
We have the power to be dead to sin. Because Christ lives, we have new life in Christ. And because Christ lives, we will never see death. Let's pray. Father, your word is God-breathed, divinely inspired, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you for it. And we ask this morning that my words are anointed and all of our hearts are anointed to receive your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. And if you do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God, you cannot be a Christian. It is at the center of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to believe in the resurrection. You can or may believe certain things that other believers don't believe, and vice versa, and still be a Christian. For example, there are believers who believe that the Bible is best understood by seeing these different dispensations of time throughout Scripture, and that's how we, we frame and organize Scripture through these dispensations from Genesis to Revelation. I have good friends who believe this. I call them brother. I embrace them. I think I'll spend eternity with them in the new creation. I think they're wrong. And vice versa. Uh, one in particular who really uh, thinks that the other way to view it is, is not a good way to view it. But I'm a believer who believes the Bible is best understood, not through dispensations, but through the various covenants that God made throughout Scripture. Each covenant that God makes, He makes a covenant with Abraham, He makes a covenant with Noah, Noah and then Abraham, He has a covenant with David, He has the new covenant in uh, the blood of Christ, and and I view Scripture as framed, the redemptive purpose of God is framed through the various covenants. And my friends who don't embrace that view still call me brother. There are lots of things without, within Christianity that people see differently. And if you don't have room for differing viewpoints on the Bible that fall within the boundaries of what it means to be orthodox, you will soon find yourself belonging to a denomination with a membership of one, and that will be you. I've known people who get to this point that are so dogmatic on every single little point that nobody is right but them. I've known those people. It's a sad place to, to end up at because I believe a lot of things about the Bible, and I think that some of those things that I believe somewhere are incorrect. I just don't know what they are or I would correct them. But there's no way. It would be the epitome of arrogance for me to say I have it all figured out. So there are things that I hold on to tentatively, loosely, and there are things that there are hills that you will die on. And the resurrection of Christ is a hill to die on on what you believe. It is not just something that we want to believe. It is the very power of God into salvation. It is the climax of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story of the resurrection is the crescendo in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each Gospel tells the story differently. And if we're honest and we look at all four accounts, it is difficult to reconcile all the accounts in the four Gospels into one cohesive story 
with one very clear timeline. There's been some good attempts at it, maybe they're correct, maybe they're not, but it is not an easy thing to do. And we don't see this as a problem with Scripture. We see it as the natural consequence of four different people telling the exact same story. It would be what would happen if four of us in this room saw a major event. We would highlight some things the other person left out. We would explain it a little differently. I mean, if, as a friend of mine in law enforcement uh, used to often tell me, he said, the one thing we know as law enforcement is that eyewitness testimonies vary at the same scene. And he said, it is the job, it's part of our job to synthesize those into one cohesive story. This is, however, one of the ways that we can argue that the idea of the resurrection is true and not a fabricated story, because if it were fabricated and recorded in four different books by four different authors, they would have probably told a very similar story. They would have got together and said, if we're going to make up this story about the resurrection of Jesus, then we're all going to be 100% on the same page. There was likely very little collaboration, and it is simply four people telling the same story and highlighting different aspects of the story. So I say that because if you want to get a full picture of the resurrection day, you would need to read all four accounts of the gospel. We live in a day when everything is recorded. There is a camera right there right now. You may never have noticed it, but it is recording everything that's done in this room this morning at least the, the visual. There are cameras now, a lot of people have cameras in cars to record everything that's done. Probably a pretty smart idea. Every business nearly that you go into of any size, you're going to be recorded. There's cameras in homes, doorbell cameras. Everything is recorded today. The, all the streets of major cities, I mean, there's cameras watching everything that goes on. But for most of history, Nothing was recorded except in writing. Writing it down is how they recorded events. And all we have to verify the resurrection is four accounts by four men who we believe wrote under divine inspiration, but it's still their words. God does not, when, when the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture, He did not take over their hand and all of a sudden they just start writing. Um, no, they're writing with their intellect, their will, their style of writing. We can study the grammar of Peter and the grammar of Paul. Grammar of John and James, they're all very different. You can see their different education levels. The Holy Spirit inspired them to write. Since holy men of old were moved on by the Holy Spirit and they wrote, but it was their words. And that's all we have to verify the resurrection. I say that because for the believer, that is enough. That's all we need. It is written, that's enough. To be a believer means that if it is written, thus it is written, and no one can alter it. Notice that, that Jesus' resurrection was different from another resurrection we see in the Gospels. We see Lazarus, very similar story. Lazarus is in the tomb, and he's been dead a while, and Jesus said, I'm going to bring him back to life. And People said, well, you can do that, but by now he stinks. Like he is decomposing. He's been dead that long. And Jesus steps forward and says, Lazarus comes forth. And Lazarus walks out of the grave, out of the tomb. 
but he's still bound by grave clothes. But that didn't happen to Jesus. Lazarus' resurrected body is just like the body that he died in. It's not a glorified body. Lazarus is going to die a second time. Not Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is different than that of Lazarus and that Jesus has a resurrected body. Scripture says the linen cloth is laying where a body used to be. So this is a physical resurrection. There, are, uh, there have been people that have argued throughout church history that, well, it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a physical bodily resurrection. But no, we see that uh, where the body was, now the, the linen cloth that they wrapped his body in, Jesus has taken that off. Bible makes it a point to say that the, the face, the head cloth that covered his head and his face was not just cast aside. Jesus takes the time to fold it and place it into another place in the tomb. This is a physical event. The body of Jesus is a glorified body that will never die again. His body was able to eat food and walk among the people, but now his body can appear inside locked rooms, which he does. He appears to his disciples. You imagine being huddled, afraid that they're coming after you next. The door is locked and all of a sudden no one knocks on the door. A man suddenly appears. He's on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with his disciples and they don't recognize him. And next thing you know, he's gone. This is a different Jesus. It's a different body. And that body is somewhere right now. Have you ever stopped to consider that? That Jesus is somewhere right this minute in body, in a physical existence. See, where is he at? Well, the Bible tells us he's at the right hand of the Father. This is a symbolic language. God is spirit. Um, but at the right hand of the Father is, is a symbolic way of saying that he is, is equal in authority and in power. And the Bible says he sits at the right hand of the Father and he ever makes intercession for the saints. Jesus is praying for you right now. That ought to let us lay our heads on a pillow at night with peace. Is it safe? I mean, I, I love, I love when someone says, hey, I've been praying for you. Or let me pray for you. I love that. I love to hear somebody say, you know, I've been praying for you lately. That means the world to me when somebody says that. That they're holding me up. They're an intercessor. An intercessor is just someone that's standing between you and God praying that you know bringing we, we call it bridging the gap they're standing in between you and god bringing you together and i love it when people do that but the bible says that what jesus is doing now is making intercession for all the saints he is praying for us that is encouraging so number one because christ lives we have the power to be dead to sin hear the words of paul for we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul sets the, the structure, the foundation, and then he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. What's he saying? Christ has a resurrected body that's never going to die again. You don't have that yet. I am not in my glorified body yet. I have a mortal body. 
It can die today. And so Paul says, because you have a mortal body, don't let sin reign to make you, because when sin reigns in your life, it will make you do anything. You are a slave to its desires. There are people this morning that hate themselves waking up for what they did last night. It could be a number of things. They will beat themselves all up all day today because of what they did last night. But they are a slave to their passions. Do not present your members, Paul said, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So not only was death conquered at the cross and through the resurrection, Paul says sin also was conquered. Because Christ lives, we have the power to be dead to sin. Look closely at verse 12. He said, don't let sin reign. What kind of person reigns? Well, a king reigns. This is sovereign language. Someone in charge. He said, don't let sin be in charge of your life. Everyone has struggles. Everyone fails. Everyone falls down. Everyone makes mistakes. But there is a huge difference between falling down and bowing down before the power of sin. Paul is saying, don't serve sin. You don't have to. You are in Christ. Lest, he said, Christ would have died in vain for you. Don't let it be said that Christ died in vain for you. The Puritan preacher John Owens wrote the, the book hundreds of years ago, The Mortification of Sin. And he wrote these words that he is most famous for when he cries out in his book, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Every day, mortifying the deeds of this body. Paul says you do that. You don't get up every day and say, well, Lord, um, I'm just going to go do what I want and you make this happen. No, Paul says you are intentional about it. There are actions that you take. You mortify the deeds of this body. Paul said you take off the old self and put on the new self. You put this body under subjection. Every day the war rages on, I must die daily. I must take up a cross every single day, crucify myself on that cross, die daily. So Paul says two chapters later, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Now lest we think it as a matter of willpower, I'm not saying that you defeat sin by willpower. I'm going to bootstrap my way up, defeat sin, uh, I'm going to have victory by sheer self-determination. I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm just going to, I'm going to make this happen. No, you have a part to play. Um, but we're reminded that we are not only dead to sin, but we are alive in Christ. We have the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that flows from the throne of God. We are empowered through resurrection power 
through Jesus to conquer every sin, to cast down every imagination that comes into our minds. You have that power through the power of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling, manifest power and presence of the Holy Spirit gives you the power to overcome sin every day. And the victory of the cross and the victory that is in the empty tomb is not only Christ's victory, it's our victory. We share in that victory with Jesus. We stand in victory lane with Christ. We share in the riches of the power of a resurrected Savior so that we can defeat sin. Number two, because Christ lives, we have new life in Christ. We can defeat sin, but now we have a new life in Christ. It's not just that we eliminated one thing, we've embraced something new. One of the I think most beautiful songs that has been written uh, the last, you know, a hymn. We sing, I love old hymns, but this song was written in um, 1971, so for a hymn it's fairly recent. Uh, I think it was written by the Gaithers. And it says that God sent His Son, and they called Him Jesus. He came to love, to heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. And because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. Is there anyone who can honestly ever say that their life was worse after they came to Jesus? Now, there are those who will say that their life experienced much greater hardship, turmoil, persecution, suffering. Absolutely. Just ask Paul. Paul's on the inner circle of his group. He is not experiencing any persecution, any hardship, any suffering. He's one of the guys. They're in power. And he walks away from all that to come to faith in Christ, has this Damascus Road experience, and spends the rest of his life running suffering, being beaten. This is a man who could walk through the streets of the city with his head held high, and now people have to lower him over the wall of a city in a basket, or he's going to die. Hardships, you better believe it. But ask the Apostle Paul, was it worth it? Paul's going to say, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. So I don't mean those things. I mean, do you think you were better off before you knew Christ? And I don't think anyone, unless they're deceived, or unless more likely they're very bitter and have walked away from God, would say, yeah, my life's better now than before I walked with God. So I want to read this passage, these six verses, because I want you to hear what Paul says, and I want to frame it in a particular way. So this is Philippians 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, he's talking about confidence in himself, in his heritage, I have reason to have that. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes, you think you have reason? He says those three words. Verse 4, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Means I was inherently Jewish. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. 
regarding righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's Paul. He's like, you couldn't find any fault in me according to the law. I followed it religiously. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, I'm going to come back to this word, I count them as rubbish. Old translations said dung. Newer translations say rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Everything that I had, I count as refuse so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. There's been a lot of words, ink spilled on pages, a lot of words spilled over what exactly the definition of that word, um, refuse, rubbage, uh, Paul was writing the word um, skubavlon was the word that he wrote, and then everybody wants to argue about what that means. And it's the only time in the Bible that word is used. But there are surviving documents from that time period. Some of them are merchant records, diaries, medical journals from 2,000 years ago that use that same word. And so they go to that and say, well, sometimes... It's used as human excrement, and other times, most of the time, it's used as waste, usually referring to a farmer when they go through and they harvest their crops, what falls off to the side, the waste, is usually how that word is used. And I think it is pointless to try to decide or figure out how Paul was using that, because the meaning of both sides of that word, it only has one meaning, and that's waste whether it's human waste, which Paul probably had at least somewhat in mind, he's trying to make a point, or if it's just the trash in general, the point is it's waste, it's garbage, it's no good. The idea that Paul is trying to get across is that all of his accomplishments are rubbish, waste, in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of us could say that? That everything that I've accomplished in this life, no matter how great it is, I count it as waste in comparison to being able to know Jesus. I reread an article last night written by John Bloom, staff writer at Desiring God. And the article was him connecting and knowing a missionary husband and wife in the Middle East, that's all he could say, uh, lest he expose them, who every day they get up and the husband and wife say goodbye to each other and they don't know if they will see each other at the end of the day. Because if they are caught being Christians and making converts, she will be arrested, she will be assaulted numerous times, and then she will die. He will be beaten, tortured, and he will die. And that is how they say goodbye every day. I may not see you tonight if we're caught. The conversation John Bloom said in the article about whether or not signs, wonders, and miracles still exist 
a big debate in the United States in Christianity if God is still doing those things. John Bloom said, it's not an academic debate among these people. He said they regularly see everything that we see in the book of Acts happen in their lives and ministry. He said they can't operate if they don't. And so that husband and wife missionary family came to the United States and you'd think that they looked at it as a way of escape. <sighs> Got out of that country. And the wife ended up going to her husband and saying, we have to go back. She said, these Christians in this country are being sung to sleep by Satan's lullaby. She said, I cannot live this way. She said, we have to go back. And so they did. That's hard for us to wrap our heads around. We are so addicted to comfort and safety. We think sacrifices. Well, what we call and think about sacrifice for the kingdom in our mind is such a different category than somebody like that. They've given everything. They know they may end up giving the ultimate sacrifice. And yet, they come here and say, I can't live this way. This is Satan's lullaby is, is lulling these people to sleep. I have to get back to a place where I can touch God. Those people counted everything else as waste in light of knowing Jesus Christ. A few verses later, Paul would say, forgetting those things which are behind. And that's the, the main point here in this passage I want to make. Forgetting those things which are behind. And I know that we can never truly forget our past, but know that Christ does not lay sins to your charge that have been forgiven and covered by the blood. People? Yeah. God? A new life in Christ means a new way of living in Christ. So discipleship and sanctification will change how you live. It will change your values. It's going to re rearrange and alter your habits, your entertainment choices, your language, your spirit, your attitude, your priorities. Everything that makes you you is going to be reoriented and reprioritized when you come to Jesus. And some of those things will happen immediately after conversion. And others will take a lifetime of Christ molding and forming you into His image. But all of it is part of being transformed into the image of a resurrected living Christ. Matt Redmond is a Christian counselor. And every weekend he posts ten random thoughts. That's just it. Ten random thoughts for the weekend. And they're always so good to read. I usually agree with him, and when I don't, it's still very thought-provoking. And yesterday, he wrote, it was his first point, and I read that, and I said, that fits perfectly in, in this sermon. This is what Matt writes. If Jesus is who he said he was, he was the smartest person who ever lived, and the most mentally healthy. So, as a counselor, his life and teaching is primary information in how I think about people and how they change and what a mentally healthy person looks like. What is Matt saying? He's saying, I'm a Christian counselor and Jesus is my benchmark. And I try to help people get from where they are and say Jesus was the, most smart, was the smartest, most mentally sound person that ever lived. We want to be like Jesus. What words to hear in our counseling room. To sit in counseling and hear those words would be 
would be powerful. So how do we, how do we become like Jesus? How do we live this new life? What enables us to do this? Well, we are disciples of Christ. We study the life of Christ, His teaching, His ways, and His wisdom. But I've said several times before from this pulpit, it is possible to be the disciple of someone who is dead. Lots of people do it. It's a person that's been dead for a long time, and yet they study their ways and their teachings. So we do that with Jesus. The difference is the one who we follow is not dead. He lived again, and He is alive today and forevermore. And then, and this is what makes all the difference, we allow the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, to inwardly transform us. So the Spirit of Christ takes the teachings of Christ in Scripture, and it applies them to us inside our hearts, our minds, in a way that transforms our heart, our mind, our soul, our body, and our spirit. That's the power of sanctification, of discipleship. I have the teachings, but I also have the Holy Spirit living within me that is actively, powerfully applying those teachings to my life. Number three, because Christ lives, we will never see death. Because death no longer has dominion over Christ, death no longer has dominion over those who are in Christ. Jesus said in John 8, we talked about it, Many sermons ago, going through the book of John, he says, If you keep my word, you will never see death. And everybody there that heard him that day, they died. And we know that we're going to die. So what does he mean? He means that death was conquered through the resurrection of Christ. A thousand years before Jesus lived on this earth in the incarnation, King David prophesied that Christ would conquer death. It's in Psalm 16. David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Older translations would say, You will not leave my soul in hell. We use that Sheol because people a lot of times picture hell as this eternal punishment place and in this context that's not what he's talking about he's talking about the grave we refer to that as the lake of fire a place of eternal punishment we call that in our language we call that hell but in scripture usually if if it's talking about hell in that context it's actually talking about the grave it's talking about death so you will not abandon my soul to sheol to the grave you're not going to leave me there you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now that was a thousand years before Christ. So hear the words, and it's gonna, I want to take a minute to read this, but just follow in your minds what is going on here in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls in an upper room. They all speak in other languages. It's the language of the people who are all gathered in Jerusalem. These are known tongues, known languages because the people that gather recognize the language. They said, are we not Parthians and Medes and Elamites? We're from all over the world, and yet those people are from right here. How do they know that language? And that moves into them asking Peter questions, and it allows Peter to deliver this sermon. And this is the sermon that Peter delivers. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This same Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, it's the resurrection, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him. So now Peter goes in this first sermon on Pentecost, Peter starts quoting David from a thousand years before him. He says, David wrote, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then he steps back and looks at them and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, so first, they all know he was a king. Peter refers to him as a patriarch. And now he says David was a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, this is what we call the Davidic covenant, we're me saying when, at the outset that the Bible is framed by different covenants. God makes a covenant with David that your throne is going to be an everlasting throne. You're, this is an everlasting throne that you have. He's speaking of the seed of David, which can be traced down to Jesus Christ. Jesus is a descendant uh, on, on the human side from King David. It says, David knows that God is going to set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then, I love verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Who is he speaking about? He's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God, and having received, Peter says, from the Father... The promise of the Holy Spirit, He, who is He? He is Jesus. So Jesus has ascended to the throne, to the right hand of the Father. The Father gives Jesus the promise of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus pours out this that you yourselves are seeing today. And that's so important to see because what Peter is trying to get these people to understand is that what you are seeing right now, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, came from Jesus. They think Jesus is dead. How can Jesus do this if he's dead? Peter says, no, he didn't stay dead. He, he's, he ascended. He was resurrected. He ascended into the heavens. And this that you are seeing is the direct result of the Messiah. Jesus is doing Acts chapter 2. He's just doing it from afar. But all of this is the result of Jesus. It's still about Jesus Christ. So Christ is first resurrected from the tomb, and then He ascends. Acts 1, He ascends into the heavens, and then He is exalted. We talk about the resurrection, we talk about the ascension some, not enough, but we rarely talk about the exaltation of Christ. But God had exalted Christ 
He gives him the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is then given to the people in the upper room. That's Acts 2.33. John Polhill, and I rarely quote commentaries in a sermon, but I read this and, and said, yes. John Polhill writes, Only the one exalted to God's right hand can dispense the Spirit. Psalm 110 verse 1 is a very popular scripture in the, in the New Testament church. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Short verse. Jesus uses that verse in Mark 12. He quotes it to correct the people's understanding about the Messiah. It is outside of that either referred to directly or alluded to 12 times in the New Testament. One verse alluded to 12 times. It's very central in the early church. And now Peter uses that same verse, this is one of the twelve, to declare that Jesus Christ is not only the Messiah of Israel, but He is both Lord and Christ. He is elevating Jesus to His position as God. He is incorporating the identity of Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, who they all know is a guy that walked among us. Peter says he's now exalted. He's not only ascended, he has been exalted. He is including Jesus within the identity of the one true God so that they may still be monotheists, still believe there's only one God. To be a Christian means that you believe there's one God and Jesus is that one God. It wasn't just a Jewish man who is Israel's Messiah that God raised from the dead. He is Messiah, but He is also the Son of the living God, the Word made flesh. John 1 he was both with God and He was God. And we cannot talk about the resurrection. I wind down with this. But we cannot talk about the resurrection and not go to 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, have perished. In, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ. What does that mean? Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming. The firstfruit is a reference to the Old Testament law when people would take the first portion of the harvest and they would offer it to God by bringing it to the priest. And they said, this is the firstfruit. This is the first part of the harvest. Christ is the firstfruit of the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is not something that is going to happen in the future. It's already started. That's what Paul means. He's getting this idea that the resurrection of the dead is real because it is not a future event. Jesus kicked it off. He started it. He was the first fruit. And then there's this period of time the Bible calls the last days or the time of the new covenant or the church age where believers die like everybody else. And then, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I tell you this, brother, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, Paul has already used Old Testament fest festival language with the use of first fruits. That first fruits word is an Old Testament word. Now he's going to use trumpets at the last trumpet. It, it's symbolic. The trumpets are symbolic. It, it symbolizes that uh, just as in the Old Testament they used trumpets to sound certain stages of the festival, so at that last trumpet, it's going to be a signal for the dead in Christ to come back to life. And so there's symbolism here. First fruits, trumpets, and then there is, it's not symbolism. It is the rock-solid reality, literal interpretation that dead people who died in Christ will be raised from the dead. Everybody who ever died in faith is not going to remain in that grave. They will be resurrected out of that grave. The picture that Paul's painting, and I don't have time to go into it, but the picture that Paul's painting in 1 Corinthians 15 is that dead body goes in the ground. He uses seed language. Your dead carcass is going into the ground and it's going to be there like a seed planted. So at the resurrection, a immortal, glorified, eternal, physical physical reality made of matter body will be resurrected and will never see death because Christ lives we will never see death and I close with this I want you to see how Paul uses the resurrection of Christ to frame the second coming of Christ for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So this is the second coming of Christ. This is a future event He's talking about. We who are alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That caught up, that two-word phrase is where we get the word rapture. That's caught up. It's harpazo. It's, we, we, we leave the earth and we meet all those who have went before us who died in faith, who come out of the grave. And we meet them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the promise of the believer. Too many people get caught up with trying to be, figure out exactly what happens after that moment, that they miss the beauty of that particular moment. Don't look any farther than that for this just right now in this sermon, don't, don't think any further than that. Think about the promise that's happening. Dead people in Christ live again. People who are on the earth when Christ returns, meet them. 
They're all with the Lord, and they're never going to leave the Lord. That's the promise. How it all pans and shakes out after that, talking about holding on to things dogmatically and loosely, I don't know for sure. I think we come back to the earth, we usher the king. Paul's using Caesar language there, that word, to go out is is what they would do. The people in the city would see the king coming from afar off. They would leave the city, they would meet the king, and they would usher him back into the city. But whatever happens, however it happens, what matters is we're going to be with the Lord. And then Paul says, I mean, you know, What's wrong with people who try to scare people with this message? Because if you try to scare people with this message, you are defying what Paul said in verse 18. He closes the idea with, therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are words of encouragement, not fear. The fact that Christ is going to return should encourage us. Verse 14, the product of believing in the resurrection of Christ is the belief in the resurrection of the saints of God and in the inclusion of those who are alive on the earth when He returns. It is going to be the greatest family reunion in human history. People from every century are going to be, re- going to be united. People from every nation, every tribe, every language, every color, every race, every creed, every socioeconomic strata, all believers are coming together in one and going to be gathered to meet the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul said, encourage one another with these words, and yes, Paul, 2,000 years later, in a church, in a land that you didn't even know existed, we are doing just that. And all of this is possible because Christ was raised from the dead, ascended to the heavens, was exalted, and now His Spirit is at work in the world today. Let's stand. Father, I thank You that 2,000 years ago, the power of Your Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus Christ, and that He now sits on the throne, exalted at the right hand, in power, in glory, in deliverance. And He is sovereign over every government, every family, every situation, every sickness, every disease. He is sovereign. And we glory in that. We ask You this morning, Lord, let us every day see Your resurrection power. That we could join Paul As he said in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. And Lord, help us to know you in that resurrection power. And yes, even to know you in the fellowship of your suffering, that we may know you rightly and true. I ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.